0: I'd like to welcome everybody to today's presentation on vulnerabilities, what they are and what we can do about them. I am your host, Dr. Donnelly Snipes. We're going to define vulnerabilities, identify some of the most common ones, their effects and ways to prevent them. So this is really a big overview. If you go to the YouTube channel, All CEUs Education, you can find full length videos on each and every vulnerability, but we're really just hitting the highlights for people who aren't interested in getting down into the into the nitty-gritty just to help you understand and help you explain to your clients um or remind your clients about the importance of taking care of more than just that presenting issue. Vulnerabilities are situations or things that make it more difficult to deal with life on life's terms, leading to depression, anxiety, stress, irritability, whatever you want to call it. People don't feel happy. And I want you to think more broadly of vulnerability, anything that is going to make you potentially more irritable. For me, for example, if I am too hot, I don't do well being. Well, cold either, but especially hot. If I am too hot, I get super cranky and I tend to be more short tempers. One of the reasons I don't live in Florida anymore, but it's important to know for you what things make you more short tempered. I'm another per- one of those people who I run early. If I'm supposed to be somewhere at one o'clock and I get there at 1250, I feel like I'm late. So when I start running behind, if I'm actually going to get there On time, I get stressed, so I am more vulnerable to getting irritable with, are driving slowly in traffic or, or anything else that might kind of get in my way. So I know that that's a vulnerability. I get very high strung or stressed out when I am when I'm running when I'm running behind. So time management is an issue that I have to manage, and it's important for each and every person to think about what things in my life what. Um, situations make me more likely to be short tempered, less patient, or irritable. Depression occurs when people feel helpless and hopeless, or if they've just felt too stressed out for too long and they're just like, you know what, forget it. I can't. I just, I can't anymore. Anxiety occurs if you feel powerless or out of control. And a lot of times, anxiety occurs before depression. Uh, people start feeling powerless they try start to try affecting things they start to tr- start trying to make changes and they may not feel that it's making that much of a difference and then they start getting frustrated and overwhelmed and give up addictive behaviors also increase when people feel a need to escape because of stress anxiety depression or pain and it's important to recognize the influence of substances on our brain once we start engaging and even addictive behaviors once we start engaging behaviors anything that causes that you know extreme dopamine rush with regularity then we are going to likely prompt changes in the circuitry in our brain which will lead to uh, tolerance symptom withdrawal symptoms but more than that, it will also leave feelings of anxiety or depression we're not using because our brain starts to expect us to flood it with those neurochemicals. So addictive behaviors in and of themselves can be a vulnerability people. Even things that are exhilarating, you know, if you... Think about when you go on vacation, you know, hopefully it's a wonderful vacation. It's awesome. You are just, you know, full bore gung ho having a blast the whole time and you come back and how do you feel? I think most of us, while we may not be more vulnerable, so to speak, we're exhausted because it takes a lot of energy and our brain is recuperating from having all those happy chemicals pumping through the system so much. We'll start out with physical vulnerabilities. Pain is a big one. There are a lot of people, and you know, I dare say the majority of people, struggle with some sort of pain on a semi-regular basis. If you are a fitness person and you have a really good workout, you may love the fact that you had a really good workout, but you may also experience pain. I know days, well, when the gym's open and I can have a really good lift That night, or heaven forbid, the night after, my muscles are so sore, sometimes it's difficult to lay in bed because, you know, my quadriceps are just absolutely killing. And that obviously is going to be something that might disrupt sleep. We want to pay attention to pain. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying don't work out, but I'm saying recognize the impact of pain on your attitude, on your ability to get quality sleep, on your ability to concentrate. When I have a kink in my neck. And I know other people are the same way. Think about when you have had a kink in your neck and you've been at work and you've been trying to focus, you can't turn your head. Um, It makes it a little bit more difficult to concentrate, not only because you're in pain and you're constantly rubbing it, trying to make it feel better, but also just because you feel like you're less aware of what's going on because you're less mobile. Um, So pain can also make us more irritable. I know when I am in pain for a while, like when my arthritis is acting up or something that, but whatever, uh, I can get a little bit testy. I get frustrated that my body is not cooperating with me. I get frustrated of feeling pain. And so that can lead to irritability. So I might already be somewhat frustrated and angry, then something else happens and I may react with an exaggerated response to that. Remember, pain also turns on that threat response system, our HPA axis, because when we have pain, that's our body saying something's broken, something's wrong. And it may be something's just a little bit wrong, like a kick in your neck, or it may be something big is wrong, but something is wrong. So the threat response system is kicked off, which we know reduces serotonin, increases norepinephrine, and reduces sleep quality. Pain is a big thing we need to help people address. We also know that ways that we can address pain include stress management because if other things are causing that HPA axis to be activated, then we're already experiencing reductions in our pain threshold because of that lower serotonin level. We're already experiencing potentially more pain because of muscle tension and other things in in our body. So it's important to recognize for you, what does pain do? How does pain impact you? And what can you do about it? You know, talk with your doctor, obviously, make sure it's not anything that's a big deal. And then explore non-pharmacological intervention. Ice is one of my favorite. Heat ice, TENS units, yoga, stretching, massage. There are a lot, acupressure, acupuncture. There are a lot of different things can use. They've actually even found that some essential oils, like essential oil of bergamot, uh, reduces people's perception of pain. Now, you know, whether that works for you, you have to try it out yourself. But there have been some studies, and you can go to PubMed and just look at um, essential oils. Use the keywords essential oils and pain tolerance or pain. And you'll find a lot of different articles where they have started exploring this experimental. Poor nutrition is another one. Your body needs the building blocks. I know I say this just about every single class, which should highlight why it's so important. Food provides your body the building blocks to make the neurotransmitters, to help you feel happy, to help you deal with stress, to help you re-regulate. When you get dysregulated to send out those endorphins, those natural pain fighters, your body makes all of those chemicals from the foods you eat. So it's vital that we eat good foods. The, your nutrition will also help you from, uh, keep from getting sick, which is another thing that, you know, right now is super important, but most of us tend to be less pleasant to be around, to be nice, uh, when we are sick. I know when I have a stuffy head and a runny nose and a cough and I'm not, number one, I'm not sleeping well, um, but I tend to be more at least apathetic, if not more irritable with those around me. So it's important to know, again, for you, what things impair your ability to tolerate life on life's terms. Things clients can do that are not going to be contraindicated. You know, we can talk with them about the importance of having at least 64 ounces of water per day, and that's water. Reminding them that caffeine and uh, other stimulants like decongestant will actually be diuretic. They'll cause you to lose more water, so you need to drink more water when you're consuming those things. And it's a balance. If you like your coffee, especially if you like caffeinated coffee, balancing those things out can be a little bit of a challenge. But it is important to make sure you get water. Most of your body's uh, chemical reactions take place in a fluid environment. Without fluid, then you don't have the conductivity that you to make things happen effectively and efficiently. Have three colors on your plate at every meal. Condiments and Skittles do not count, unfortunately. But um, it is important to try to eat colorfully. A lot of people aren't in following a food journal or following a menu. They think they want to eat, they want to eat. They don't want to have to count calories or macros. And no, unfortunately, I'm sorry, Wendy, m um, ms don't count either. The uh, But a lot of people aren't into being super attentive to what they're eating. But most people can look at a plate and go, yes, there are three colors on this plate. And it's actually a little bit of a challenge sometimes at first when you're trying to eat more colorfully to figure out, especially green, how to get green in there at breakfast can be a little bit of a challenge, the exception of like honeydew melon or something. But apples you know you have green apples that you can eat green grapes there are greens that you can include in breakfast but having three colors on your plate at every meal ensures that you're getting a wide variety of micronutrients as well as eating relatively healthfully and try to eat smaller meals now some dietitians will argue with this if you've got an underlying health condition you know obviously people are supposed to follow their their medical doctor or registered dietitian um, recommendations with this but a lot of people uh, do better if they eat smaller meals every few hours with intermittent fasting some people are getting away from that and if you do intermittent fasting more power to you but it is important to maintain your blood uh, my husband is hypoglycemic so if he goes too long without eating his blood sugar starts to crash and he gets irritated. when he was in law enforcement he was on patrol uh, Pretty much every single time, and we traced it back, we looked at vulnerabilities, uh, every single time he would get a complaint would be a time when his blood sugar was low, and we'd be out shopping or, or whatever, we've been married for like 25 years, um, and I can tell when his blood sugar is getting low because he starts getting very impatient irritable. Um, so it's important for him to recognize when he needs to eat, but also to do things like keeping food with him um, when he's going out, whether it's a, you know, some sort of nutrigrain grain bar or something, whatever it is that can keep him, as, as Barrett says, from getting hangry uh, is really important. But for some of us, we may not get to the point of being hangry, but we may have more difficulty concentrating when our blood sugar gets low or start feeling like we're know how your body reacts and know what's important when you need to being mindful of when you have those cravings for food to check in and say, you know, am I hungry or am I wanting to eat for some other reason? And the more mindful we are, the more we get in tune um, with our body. And yes, kids go through growth spurts and oh my gosh, If you remember back to when you had kids around the house, or maybe you do now, I know mine are older teenagers, so they're mainly through this area, but when they would go through a growth spurt, my fridge would empty, like gangbuster. When you eat mindfully, then you're eating when you're hungry, but for... Whoops, sorry. When kids are younger and going through those growth spurts, then they need to—they often need to eat more and more often in order to stabilize their blood sugar. Another interesting point is that our brain is one of the biggest users of blood glucose. So when you're at school, if you're using a lot of cognitive energy, uh, when you're at work, if you're using a lot of cognitive energy, you may actually feel hungry more so than you do on- other days like when you're out in the garden thing because your your body is using more blood sugar they also found that with children who are gifted and you know maybe other children too but the particular experiment was done on children who are gifted that their blood sugar tends to drop a lot more precipitously throughout the day so it's more even more vital for them to make sure that they have a really good balanced lunch and maybe even a snack in between in order to keep their blood sugar up and acting out behaviors and other things that might be problematic. During the pandemic, a lot of people are eating more partly because they are stressed. And when we eat especially high sugar, high fat foods, it causes our body to release dopamine and serotonin. Sometimes we eat because it's soothing, it distracts us. It's something that we can focus on besides the news, besides the fact that we can't leave the house. Um, and sometimes we are hungrier or we feel hungrier more often because we've got, gotten our circadian rhythms out of whack. And your circadian rhythms are set by when you go to sleep and you wake up, but they are help control the excretion of your hunger and your satiation hormones and so if your your schedule has changed or if it's kind of loose then you may find that your body doesn't know when it's not and finally sometimes we are bored and there and you're you're not busy with other things so you're sitting there doing your crossword puzzle or whatever and you're like oreos those sound good and we need to pay attention when we're eating uh or before we eat actually whether we're eating for hunger. Or some other reason. Lack of sufficient quality sleep is also a, a vulnerability. I know when I don't get enough sleep, I am a great big old cranky pants. I do not do well with sleep deprivation. So I was a deer to be around when I had instant home, let me tell you. Drug and alcohol induced sleep is rarely good quality. Alcohol, for example, helps you fall asleep faster And the first two to three hours may be a little bit better but then as the alcohol exits your system your body can't balance out the neurochemicals quickly enough so the last two-thirds to half of your sleep at night is going to be much more disrupted and much less quality if you have sleep apnea it's a double whammy because alcohol actually exacerbates sleep apnea in the first part of the night, and then you get crappy quality sleep the rest of the night. Alcohol and sleep really don't mix. If you're going to drink alcohol, making sure that your blood, blood alcohol level is somewhere around zero, zero before you go to sleep is helpful. Did you know that you can order little breathalyzers that you can keep on your keychain they're they're not expensive. They are not obviously State Trooper quality, but it'll give you a re- regular kind of general idea about where you're at. It's something that I strongly recommend with any of my clients who consume alcohol. So when they go out to happy hour or out to dinner and have a couple of glasses of wine, that they can... Um, give themselves, you know, go to the bathroom or whatever, and give themselves a little private breathalyzer test before they leave the restaurant to make sure that their alcohol level is below the legal limit. But you can also use it at home to make sure that your blood alcohol level is zero before you go to bed. Lack of sleep contributes to fogginess and difficulty concentrating. We've talked about this in other classes. When we think, we create something called a adenosine. It's a byproduct of thinking. For lack of a more in-depth explanation. As adenosine builds up in your brain, it causes what they call sleep pressure, which as adenosine builds up, we get sleepier. When we reach this maximum threshold of adenosine, it's, you know, you're sitting in bed and you're like, oh, I can't even focus anymore. It's time for me. That is kind of using you your max level of adenosine. When you are asleep, your brain clears it out, but you have to be deep sleep. So if you're getting crappy sleep, the adenosine's not getting cleared out, or at least not effectively cleared out. So you're going to be foggy, have difficulty concentrating the next day. When a lot of people, when we are foggy and have difficulty concentrating, aside from the hunger and satiation hormones, we tend to try to eat to stay awake. We think, oh, well, maybe if I have a little sugar or a little caffeine, it'll wake me up. And you keep trying to sort of self-medicate with food and drink throughout the day, which is not good for your HPA axis, and it's really probably not effective. We can become irritable when we don't have enough sleep. A lot of people do. They've shown that sleep deprivation, and that doesn't mean hours necessarily, but lack of quality sleep actually ramps up that threat response system, ramps up the HPA axis, ramps up our cortisol levels, and we start to feel... More irritable because we are in a little mini fight or flight sort of thing. In the morning, our cortisol level is highest. You know, it's our body secretes the cortisol and it says, All right, stress hormone, time to get up. We need a little bit of stress to function. So that's not a bad thing. But when we are excessively sleepy, then our body is regularly pumping out that cortisol to cause us to dump blood glucose to try to keep us awake. Our body's trying to keep us going, but it's it's running the tank dry, if you want to think about it that way, which also makes us susceptible to overeating. We already talked about the fact that if you're not getting quality sleep, your ghrelin and leptin, and that's spelled G-R- uh, G-H-R-E-L-I-N and leptin easy, but the H is important in ghrelin. Ghrelin and rep- leptin, those are your hunger and satiation hormones, are regulated by your circadian rhythms and if you're not getting good sleep then that's probably gonna be out of whack when Chuck was on midnight shift he ate constantly because he didn't know if he was hungry or sleepy and it's really hard for our body to differentiate between the two sometimes or thirsty that's another one so a lot of times when we don't get enough sleep not only because our hormones are out of whack but also because we're trying to self-medicate to try to help us stay awake, we may overeat. Interventions. There are a lot of interventions uh, for sleep hygiene. Like I said, there are are other videos on the YouTube channel specifically devoted to sleep. You can also go to the Sleep Foundation website. I think it's sleepfoundation.org. Basically, develop a sleep routine. Roughly the same three things you do every night. Just like with a kid, they come home from school, they play, they eat, they bathe, They read a story, they go to sleep or whatever it is in in your world. That's what our world looks like for the first, for the last few years. Um, But that's helpful for us too. If we come home from work, we relax for a little bit. We make dinner, we eat, take a bath. Unless you bathe in the morning, Uh, read a book or do whatever it is you do, relax, and then go to bed. That helps cue your body in that it's time to start making that melatonin so we can go to sleep. You also want to turn down those lights, get rid of the blue lights, get a blue light filter on your mobile devices for your television, computer, and also try to have lights wherever you're sitting to wind down that are either adjustable so you can turn down the um, blue intensity or Um, that they're different lights the room we sit in at night i have the yellow bulbs and so they don't have any blue in them at all i don't remember where they are on the spectrum i think it's like 2500 kelvin is where the yellow is and it's a little challenging to find bulbs with virtually no blue in it but it is helpful Um, and keep it dim when your environment is dim and there is little or no blue light coming in it cues your body Um, through your eyes that it is time to start secreting melatonin. Likewise, during the day, it is Vitally important that you are exposed to blue light, that you're getting outside, that you're by a window in order to tell your brain that it's time to wake up. Your body recognizes through those, through the light levels that it's time to be awake or to sleep. Cut back on caffeine and other stimulants to 12 hours before bed. I know that sounds ridiculously hard. And I'm not saying do it necessarily right away, but it is important to remember that Caffeine stays in your system for up to 12 hours, so what you're drinking at noon may still be impacting your sleep at 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Nicotine and decongestants and some of those other stimulants are shorter acting in your system. Being aware of the stimulants that you take in. When we take in stimulants, what does it do? It ramps up that HPA axis, turns on that threat response system, which in and of themselves makes us more edgy. If you've ever, I can't, Hardly drink even you know decaf Starbucks anymore because there's so much caffeine in it, but I remember the last time I drank caffeinated Starbucks, I felt like um Beavis and Butthead doing the the sugar um video that they did, and if you haven't ever seen it you, you look look for it on YouTube later but i I felt like a little chihuahua or or squirrel or something on cocaine i swear i was just gonna crawl out of my skin and when you're revved up that much when your hpa axis is that much norepinephrine uh it's more difficult to think clearly and it's more difficult to deal with life on life's terms because a lot of times you'd be more impatient you're you're wanting to go faster and faster and faster illness is another vulnerability we talked about it a little bit earlier When we are sick, and they've actually done studies that found people with seasonal rhinosinusitis, which allergies, had higher levels of cortisol and were sleeping, their sleep was disrupted and they had higher levels of cortisol than other people, which indicated that the allergy disrupting the sleep and also the post-nasal drip and everything that goes along with it turned up that threat response system i thought that was an interesting little thing exhaustion happens when we're sick our body is devoting energy to try to help us repair and you know get back to normal so it's diverting energy from other things we're not supposed to feel super energetic it always bewildered me how my toddler was able to be playing like nothing was wrong when he would have a double ear infection i was just like oh my gosh foggy head difficulty concentrating When you're not getting enough sleep, and especially if you're sick, a lot of times you're stuffy, so you're not oxygenating enough. One of the main reasons that we yawn is not because we're actually sleepy, not because we've got too much adenosine, but because we're not getting enough oxygen. So if you notice you're yawning or feeling like you need to yawn, it may be because you're not belly breathing. So practicing some belly breathing can help. But when you're sick, you know, it is important to do as much as you can to help clear your head. You're not sleeping well. Your adenosine's not getting cleared out. Your body's not really focused on learning right now. It's focused on healing. So recognizing all that's going on, all that your body is trying to do, and being compassionate and going, you know what? Thank you for trying to get me better. Let me see if I can, you know, give you a little space to do your work instead of, you know, nagging at you that I want to go to the gym and these other things. So be compassionate with yourself and have good nutrition. Good nutrition helps your body maintain your immune system. It helps your body repair. It's a good thing. Brain changes can be hereditary from an accident, the result of addictive behaviors. But some people, because of organic changes in their brain, you know, there are actually changes in the brain, tend to be more vulnerable to stress. There are some people, because of the way they are now wired, dysregulate emotionally more than others. If that's you, that's you. Okay, that's just the way you're wired right now. What can you do? Changes in the structure of the brain have all kinds of effects, including impacting your memory, your concentration, your stress tolerance. For people who've had an accident or who are recovering from addictive behaviors, or even people who have a hereditary um, imbalance in their neurochemicals, we've looked back and generation after generation after generation has had you know, major depressive disorder that has responded to medication. There's probably some cognitive and environmental stuff in there too. I'm not saying that it's all brain, but it is important to recognize that eating a good diet, getting quality rest and medication when needed can be helpful for some people to help their body balance or create a new balance of neurotransmitters that is more functional or helpful to, you know, if their body just naturally has problems a breakdown somewhere in the dopamine system or the serotonin system they may need a little assist rebalancing that and resetting the balance of their neurotransmitters to somewhere where they can feel what they consider to be happy remember that Medication only works for about thirty percent of people. So it's not a panacea by any means, but there is a significant minority of people who do benefit from pharmacological intervention in addition to lifestyle change and those sorts. Anger, anxiety, depression, grief, guilt, jealousy, resentment, and inability to self-soothe are all vulnerabilities that we experience. We talked about being hangry earlier. And it's important to recognize, and as David points out, there are some acronyms, and you can develop as many acronyms, you know, you want to identify your personal vulnerabilities. In substance recovery, we talk about HALT, hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And it is important to recognize that hungry is you know you're physical um, angry is emotional lonely is interpersonal and tired is also physical so we need to look at the person as a whole not just their emotions not just their thoughts not just their their physical health recognizing what triggers dysphoric emotions for you and you know any of these things right here is important recognizing that anger can be disguised or versions of anger include guilt. That's anger at yourself. Resentment, anger at somebody else. Jealousy, anger at someone else for having something that you want. Grief has an anger component to it. Depression sometimes starts out with somebody being very angry. And you know, remember, anger is part of that fight or flee. It happens when we feel threatened. At a certain point, they may feel like they have no control. They get angry, but they feel like they have no control over whatever it is that's making them angry, so they eventually become depressed. Anger and anxiety underpin a lot of things. Anxiety can be thought of as stress, worry, fear, any of those things, but any of our Uh, dysphoric emotions that we have, we need to be able to self, it's important to be able to use those distress tolerance skills in order to help people get into their wise mind so they can figure out, all right, you know, I'm going to accept unconditionally without judgment that I am really ticked off right now. It is what it is. What are my options right now to deal with this situation in a way that makes sense? To improve the next moment so i don't have to stay here stuck in this in this mud when people are feeling negative emotions it causes the brain to keep the fight-or-flight reaction going which takes energy as long as you're feeding that anger you're pumping out that serotonin you're pumping out that norepinephrine you're keeping that adrenaline high you're keeping your blood pressure high all of that is exhausting after a while it's like sitting in a car and or driving a car With the gas pedal all the way down and not letting up, the engine starts to get hot after a while. It lacks or prevents the happy, calming neurotransmitters from being excreted when we are, you know, holding on to those negative emotions. Sometimes there are things we can resolve the situation that can help us feel better. Sometimes there aren't. And in recovery, we talk about the serenity prayer, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom of the difference. Part of distress tolerance skills and part of recovery also means people have the ability to know what helps them feel happy, what they can do to help get their body to secrete some of those happy chemicals encourage people to develop coping skills that work for them to deal with whatever is causing their distress ask them in the past when you have dealt with or in the past what have you done that's helped you deal with situations like this you know build on their strengths no problem in that and work from there encourage them to keep a list of coping skills that work so when they're in distress And that norepinephrine is flowing and they've got a little bit of tunnel vision because of all the adrenaline they can look at the list and go okay this is what i need i am a huge fan of having posters or pictures or things around that can prompt us visually for what we stress and encourage people to insert positive and rewarding experiences throughout the day we've talked before about emotions and neurotransmitters kind of being like warm bath. And when we are too angry, too anxious, that's like cranking up that hot water and it gets so hot that it can burn you. If you crank in a little bit of cold water, even if you're having a bad day, if you put in a little cold water, sometimes it, it evens it out a little bit. Get plenty of rest, eat a healthy diet and exercise. Exercise has been shown to help secrete serotonin as well as endorphins. And if you exercise at a low intensity, 50% below your target heart rate, or below 50% of your target heart rate max, then it also helps reduce cortisol. And you can go online and find calculators that can help you look at what you to be at for under 50% of your target heart rate. Pretty much if you're moving around, if you're cleaning house or gently walking around the neighborhood, you're probably. Cognitive situations that make us more vulnerable include global, internal, stable attributional styles, which you'll hear a lot of cognitive distortions as I go through this. Global means everything. Stable means always. So when everything is always bad, it adds extra stress. And we know people, um, and we've probably worked with clients who have a global negative attributional uh, style, global, stable, attributional style. When anything happens refle- that reflects on them as a person, it adds extra stress. So if they fail a test, instead of seeing it as a failure at a particular test or not being good in a particular subject, they see it as all-encompassing, all-encompassing I am stupid or I am you. And it's important to help people start looking at Situations as specific and alterable. You know, yes, you failed that test. That's unfortunate. That's unpleasant. There's a lot of stuff to deal with there. But does that mean that you as a person are a failure? And encouraging them to challenge their cognition, challenge those global, stable attributions that they say are about, especially about them, that are negative. We want them to be able to see things as potentially changeable. Not everything is changeable and not everything in every situation. So part of intervening here is helping people identify what parts of this situation you have control over, what parts of this Can you change? Encourage people to identify what is good about them as a person and explore the difference between what makes them a good person versus their skills. And I encourage them to look at things like compassion, creativity, and loyalty. You know, those values that we talk about that are inherent in us as what makes them a good person versus their skills. Can they make a souffle or whatever it is they're trying to do? Just because somebody can't make a souffle or whatever doesn't mean they're necessarily, doesn't mean they're a bad person. And helping them see the difference between, you know, not not being good at something that's a skill versus not being a good person. An extremely internal or external locus of control can add stress. If you think that nothing is in your control, you have an external locus of control, it's just all fate, nothing you do makes a difference, that's stressful because you feel like you are kind of a prisoner to the whim of whatever is going on. If you have an extremely internal locus of control, then you think you can control everything. And we all know that that's just not reasonable or accurate either. We want people to be somewhere in the middle, recognizing there are some things they can and some things they can't control. And in different situations, there may be parts that they can and can't control. Encourage people when they're struggling or they're working with um, moderating their locus control to identify what aspects of situations that they can control and how they can use their energy to achieve the desired outcome. Another thing they need to do is figure out how they're going to cope with the things they can. not And a lot of times we want to be able to control other people. We want to be able to control certain things and we cannot. And a lot of us are struggling with that right now. Developing a strategy for figuring out, okay, there are these things going on right now that are out of my control. How can I deal with them in a way that doesn't just exhaust, in a way that I'm not sitting in the mud and spinning my wheels and just getting more and more stuck? Self-esteem is how you feel about who you are compared to who you think you should be. And I hate that word. Low self-esteem causes people to feel helpless, not deserving of love or success. Encourage them to explore the characteristics they think should have or but don't. One of my favorite activities and one of the activities that most of my clients like uh, when we do self-esteem is to create a description of what they look for in a best friend what qualities do they look for in a best friend i have them do that i don't tell them what it's for they come in for the next session or the next group and then we through it and we talk about each one of those characters and why it's important and then i ask them okay let's look at each one of these individually which ones do you have already and which ones might you need to work on and a lot of times they recognize that they have a lot more good qualities about themselves than they really realized or gave themselves credit for. For things that are left on the list that they don't have, deciding whether that's really important to them to feel like a good person, and if if so, what to do about it. For example, I've shared with you guys before, patience is not my strong suit. Do I think that's an important character to have? Yes. Would I like to be more patient? Certainly. Is that something that I'm working on? Yes. So I've decided that that's important enough to put some energy into, because I think that that's important. When people have higher self, they don't rely on others for external validation. They don't need other people to tell them they're okay, which makes life a lot less stressful. If they can look in the mirror and tell themselves, you know, I am awesome. I am worth a worthwhile person. And they don't need other people to tell them that then they're not so worried all the time about what other people they're not feeling like they've got to be a which makes them much less vulnerable to stress they're not having to constantly try to feed every they're worried about being the best version of them that they can be negative perceptions and cognitive style when people see the world as negative depressing out of control scary terrifying life is more stressful i mean Think about what it's like to be in that person's head. And everywhere you look, you see the sky falling. You see death and destruction. It is exhausting. When people see most everything as negative or not rewarding, a lot of times they don't want to do anything. They feel powerless. They say, what's the point? If I do this, there's not going to be any benefit. Encourage people to look for the silver lining. When they start to think about something as negative, they need to find the positive. Some people talk about this as embracing the dialectic, looking at the, looking for the good and the bad and recognizing that they balance each other and encourage people to look for exception to what's going on. Maybe this particular test you failed, but look at all of the other classes you've passed and things that you've succeeded at. There are a lot of different ways to challenge negative perceptions, but remember that negative thoughts and things that we notice that are threatening or... Upsetting in some way, have a stronger emotional valence than positive thoughts. For every negative thought that we have, you want to try to have three to five positive thoughts, and that can be really challenging. I'm happy when we start out just trying to do a one to one. Like it's raining outside, it's frustrating that I'm frustrated that it's raining outside, but hey, that means I don't have to wash my car this weekend because you know after it gets wet, I can just run a towel over it and get the dust off. Um, that's what what I do, but trying to look at the positive of something that, you know, isn't what I had ideally hoped. Poor organization and time management can lead people to being overcommitted. If they're the yes that, you know, agrees to do everything, then they can feel really stressed and they can get frustrated. If I promised, you know, my friend Bob that I was going to help him in the morning, and then I promised my friend Jane that I was going to go to her baby shower at one o'clock, I get to Bob's and he's not quite ready to start me yet, I can start getting irritable because I packed my day too tightly and um, the situation is making me feel stressed. So likely I'm going to be more testy in response to anything that is not going as I had Foreseen it. The more stressed we get, the more controlling a lot of us. And when things are go against our control, we tend to be more poor time management can cause people to feel rushed or harried or forget to do things, leading to conflict. My son, bless his heart, you know, time management not his strong suit. He's gotten a lot better as he's gotten older. But for example, he was I was supposed to take him to the to the dentist, and I showed up and got out of the car, and I'm like, okay, Sean, you know, get in. Get in the car. It's time to go. He wasn't ready yet. Still had to put on his sh- Okay. So I was a little frustrated, but he got his shoes on. We get almost all the way to the dentist and he's like, I forgot my retirement, which caused a little bit of frustration on my part because, you know, that meant that we were probably going to be late for the dental appointment. And remember, I don't do well being late. So that just kind of compounded things. Recognizing how poor time management affects your work quality, your... Patience levels and your relationships is really important. Have people make a must list of must-dos at the beginning of every. Week. These are the things that I gotta get done this week. I've got to pay bills, I've got to go to the grocery, I've got to, yada, yada. Encourage them to use that as their priority. And sometimes I know I do a must-do list every single day. So I start out the morning, I'm writing down the things that I have to get done that day. Then anything else that comes along, I consult my list and I'm like, can I fit that in? with everything else I've got to do today. So I am constantly checking back and being mindful of the fact that there are only so many hours in the day. And encourage people to identify and address time sucks. Um, Mobile devices, the news, the internet, huge time sucks. I will start drinking my coffee in the morning and reading before I know it an hour has gone by and I'm like, crap, I'm gonna be late for the gym. Uh, So it's important to know where your time sucks are. And poor organization can also cause a lot of Uh, lost time. Like if you spend 15 minutes before you leave the house trying to find where you left your daggums, recognizing that not only did that probably raise your stress levels, looking for your keys, but it also caused you to start running behind putting your time out of whack, causing you to feel more rushed, making you more vulnerable to stress. Poor communication skills impede people from being able to, and when our needs aren't getting met, we're more irritable. We tend to have more difficulty dealing with life on life's terms because we don't feel like the world understands. We don't feel like we're getting our needs. Poor communication skills can cause misunderstandings and can hurt your relationships. Don't expect people to read your mind. If you need something, tell them. Most people are not good at picking up on hints. And if you're sitting there going, well, this person should know that I expect them to do this, that, and the other, that's setting yourself up for disappointment and failure. It's important to tell people what you want of them, tell people what your expectations are, what you need of them. So they can have the option of saying, sure, and doing it, or, you know, not, but then you're not sitting there in limbo going, well, they should know that they're supposed to pick me up for work today. Well, did you tell them that? For communication skills, people need to learn about effective verbal and nonverbal communication, making sure that they understand not only how to use the words, but also how to use the nonverbal so it doesn't come off as aggressive or passive. I mean, if I say, yeah, well, kind of, I'm not going to be taken nearly as seriously as if i make direct eye contact and say yes that's exactly what i want don't assume you understand what the other person is talking about and this is where paraphrasing can so helpfully when you are talking with well make sure you paraphrase when my kids were younger i used to have them repeat back to me what i said in order to make sure that they understood and heard uh, what i had been asking them to do now obviously with adults that's patronizing and condescending to say, now repeat back to me what I just said, but we do want to get in the habit of paraphrasing what we hear somebody else say so they can, so they can confirm that we heard correctly or not and, and correct any misconception. Weak emotional boundaries may keep people feeling more vulnerable because they don't they're not able to feel happy unless people around them are happy and we've all had the sickness before when we've been in some sort of situation where other people were grumpy or one other person was grumpy and we kind of felt feeling happy um, it's important to recognize that it is okay to feel happy i've been talking with people recently who feel guilty for not feeling stressed about everything that's going on in with coronavirus and everything else. And my response is, why do you need to feel stressed? If you don't feel stressed, you don't feel stressed. And, you know, kudos to you because you're not wearing down your immune system. Helping people accept and validate their own emotions as okay is important. Even if everybody else in your house is stressed, it doesn't mean you have to be stressed if you're not. People with weak emotional boundaries also may take everyone else's bad mood. You know, if they're in a bad mood, it's like, I can't be in a good mood because everybody else is in a bad mood. So that may, puts me in a bad mood. Well, why? Why does, why does other people's bad mood have to put you in a bad mood? Have people examine why it's not safe to feel how they feel and encourage them to start paying attention to their wants. And f- once they are more mindful of what they want and need and how they feel, and they're aware of, you know, why they think it might not be safe to feel how they feel. Then they can start confronting those cognitions. Is it really unsafe? If they grew up in an addicted household, then likely they were taught that it was not safe to talk to trust or to. So now as an adult, they may have to learn that it is okay to have their feelings. It's okay to be happy even if somebody else is in a bad mood. It doesn't necessarily mean you flaunt it in their face, but it is okay to have your own feelings, to have your own opinion, and to have your own wants. We talked a little bit earlier about external validation, which means not feeling okay unless you're constantly surrounded by people who tell you you're okay. They're telling you that you are good enough and smart enough and all that stuff. You look in the mirror and you're like, Is it okay for me to breathe the air? And that leaves you in the situation where you're depending on other people to get out of their own heads and to provide you constant validation. It's like they're constantly pumping you fuel. You're not able to fuel yourself. You require other people to fill you up all the time. And sometimes that just doesn't happen. Some people, Times people are just too caught in their own stuff. It's not that they don't love you. It's not that you don't deserve validation and love. It's they're in their own stuff right now. If you're able to provide your own validation, then you don't rely on those other people, fuel you up. Help people identify why they are okay, why they are awesome. And that is self-esteem building 101. And examine why they feel they need other people to validate why is it that you need other people to tell you you're okay why is it that it is so devastating when people are not fawning over themselves um to get to you? it's important to recognize a lot of it goes back to basic abandoned but until you deal with those a lot of times you are going to be stressed because you're going to be craving that external validation, need that external input. Addressing vulnerabilities frees up energy so you can deal with other stuff that comes your way. If you're not worried about what other people are thinking about you, if you're not worried about whether you're going to get somewhere on time, if you're not stressed about this, that, or the other, then all that energy is just kind of sitting in a reservoir waiting to be for something fun something that's going to help you create that rich and meaningful life eliminating vulnerabilities can help you feel less stressed exhausted and overwhelmed persistent vulnerabilities are the first relapse warning sign and the depression anxiety bipolar disorder or addiction or anything else and remember it goes with that acronym HALT hungry angry lonely and tired being mindful of when you are vulnerable and taking positive steps to address it are crucial to recovery and to preventing relapse. Thank you for being with me, everybody, uh, today, everybody. Are there any questions? I am so hoping it is a beautiful day wherever you are, even if it's snowing, hopefully, at least it's sunny, um, and you can enjoy your weekend. And, you know, I hope all of you are staying safe and strong, and I will see you on Tuesday. Between writing notes, filing insurance claims, and scheduling with clients, it can be hard to stay organized. That's why I recommend Therapy Notes. Their easy-to-use platform lets you manage your practice securely and efficiently. Visit therapynotes.com to get two free months of Therapy Notes by just using the promo code CEU when you sign up for a free trial at therapynotes.com.